Welcome to the Sleeping Barber Podcast. Today, we welcome back on the show Roger Martin for a special episode where we discuss his latest book, A New Way to Think. And don't forget, stick around to the end for a post-pod discussion. Welcome to the Sleeping Barber Podcast, a place for business leaders to get the best and most credible information on marketing, strategy, and innovation. Your hosts, Mark Binkley and Vasily Sturos, share their experiences as they gather insights from the world's leading experts. Now, on with the show. So I guess we should introduce Roger Martin. Uh, uh, thanks again for joining us again on the podcast, Roger. This is just awesome. Um, it's my so just pleasure, Martin. Some of the, yeah, it, it, this is such awesome. an honor for us. Like we, so we've got a new book coming out called "A New Way to Think," um, and, and it's amazing. It's really an amazing book. There's this one oh, quote that I saw in here. It was talking about um, from St- Stephanie Cohen, who's the global co-head of uh, consumer wealth management, Goldman Sachs. She said it was like ways for executive leadership, which I thought was such a really interesting way. Cause as I was reading through some of the sections in the book, there's parts where I was just like, I can like, this is the roadmap. Like I can take this section and, and build a workshop out of it. Or, you know, it's, it's very practical, the book. Um, well, thank amazing. you. It's so thank good. You. Thank you. And my beloved academic mentor, the late Chris Argus would be happy. He was into, Practical knowledge, he said, knowledge upon which you can't take action is is hardly worth having it at all. Uh, and so thank you. That's the highest praise you can give to me that you could go and do something with it. And it's also Peter Drucker, right? Peter Drucker, also a friend and mm-hmm. uh, a mentor. Uh, if you would say to him, uh, oh, Peter, that was great meeting. Thank you. He would say, don't tell me it was a great meeting. Tell me what you're going to do Monday morning. Right. Yeah. And so yeah. those those two guys had a big, wow. a big influence uh, on me. If I mm. can't give advice that I think the person on the receiving end uh, can take action on, like immediately, then I haven't done a good job. That's that's my view. So thank you for that. Thank you. for That is a great words. line. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is a great line. V, you had one about Tom Peters that you liked as well, right? Yeah. Honestly, like, uh, you know, I'll, I'll just read it quickly um, verbatim where it says, like, um, I suggest that you post a contents page on your work or home office wall and use it as an all you need to know daily checklist to spur action. I mean, that in summary for me is exactly what this did. Uh, literally, I've, I've created another document where I have all the, um, I guess, all the the contents. And then I've added notes underneath every single one because that for me is is the t- is the checklist. It's fantastic. Terrific. Fantastic. Terrific. That is great. You'll have to you send it to me. I'd I'd love to I'd love to see your uh, your checklist. Of course. Of course. So um I, I got so excited about talking about the book and the things that we're gonna be talking about today. I kind of forgot to introduce you just as a formality. <laughs> That's so, okay. So let's just do that real quick. But you're the strategy, a strategy advisor for um, a trusted advisor for companies like P&G, Lego, and Ford. Author of this is now thirteen books, I believe. Is that right? That is number thirteen. Yeah. Um, on on a variety of topics, and and this book actually covers a lot of those topics, like M and A and capital investment, talent, competition, innovation, stake. I mean, it's a broad swath, but I mean, there's so many practical good tips in this book and, and in all your work. Um, 
you know, over the last 10 years, you've been in the top 10, I believe, or top seven as the thinkers 50 list is, um, you know, the best management thinkers in the world. 2017 considered to be the, the number one management thinker in the world. Um, formerly the Dean of the Rotman School of Business. Um, and then, you know, people, as we talked about to Peter Drucker, people have called you the Peter Drucker of our generation, which uh, I think is great. Um, That's a very great kind. fit for you. Very fit. Um, and so in our last podcast, which we're still kind of reeling over and excited about that we get to chat with you then, <laughs> we covered some of these topics without knowing the new book was coming out, which is how we ended up in this conversation. Uh, right, so yes. In the last one, we talked about innovation, uh, maybe not to the same degree in depth that you have in the book. We talked about stakeholders. Yeah. We talked about um, shareholder versus stakeholder. Uh, and then we talked about data. And so um, in this conversation, we thought we'd cover some of the, the some of the sections in depth and not cover the whole book. But yeah. customers, knowledge work, strategy planning, execution for us was super interesting and uh, relevant for the audience that we have. So we thought we'd dig in there. Sounds good to me. Dig away. Okay. <clears throat> <laughs> All right. So um, one of the things I thought was great about the book also is is the idea that um, there's a quote from, I think it's George Box, that all models are wrong and some are useful. Yes. Um, and, and the book really kind of digs into all the, in the sections, the model, the existing dominant model that sort of forms thinking. And then you propose yeah. an alternative um, or an improvement or a build on some of those things and challenge why there's the need to, to look at that. So in the customer section, um, you talked about sort of uh, the dominant models that, you know, a lot of companies would say that, you know, we're very focused on customer, customer centricity. It's, you know, the key to our success, success and long-term sustainable advantage. Um, and then we're, you know, a lot of people are obsessed about converting customers into rabid mm -hmm. loyal fans. Um, and, and so they do that by, you know, partly by being maintaining relevance through differentiated experiences and targeted uh, segments of customers who make who then make logical choices to choose me over this one, and, and so you kind of spin that on its head, I would say, um, <laughs> and and kind of <laughs> articulate why that's not necessarily the right way to think about customers. Can you yeah. kind of expand on that? Sure. Um, so some of what you said is is absolutely what you should do with customers. I mean, you better have a great offering whether it's a product or a service for them that meets their their needs if you don't if you don't do that you've got nothing going for your uh for yourself so that part is important but what uh people these days kind of overestimate is is the value of loyalty and loyalty is a conscious uh concept right it's like mm -hmm. mark you say this, uh, I don't know, whatever, the company that cleans my shirts does a great job. Uh, and mm -hmm. so I'm going to be loyal to them. I'm not going to, when, when I get a flyer from somebody else, uh, come bring in your shirts for laundering here. Uh, I, I'm not going to do that because I'm loyal to, uh, to my existing provider, right? It just turns out that over the last 15 or 20 years, the behavioral research has uh, has has been super clear on the fact that that's not how Mark thinks. 
um, what Mark uh, does <laughs> is is develop a habit of going to his favorite uh, laundry place. Um, and it becomes the easiest thing to do, the most comfortable thing to do. And so without actually thinking about it, it's almost like an automaton. You get in your car and drive to that place and dump your shirts off the way you always have. Uh, and that is not loyalty. That's habit. Uh, it's something mm -hmm. that your subconscious kind of encourages you. It's as though your subconscious is having a, a dialogue with your conscious saying, don't think, Mark, don't think. The shirts have mm -hmm. always come back. We know exactly where to park. We know exactly what the name of the person mm -hmm. is. We know exactly how much it's going to cost. We know exactly when it's going to be ready. It's going to look exa exactly like this in the box or in the, in the hangar. Please, Mark, do not think about driving anywhere else or buying from anywhere else. Don't, don't, don't. So that, mm -hmm. that subconscious is like an iceberg. It's the 95% of the iceberg that's below the water that you don't see. Uh, and if you focus on the 5% above, um, you're not going to do the sorts of things that, that make that habit incredibly strong. Uh, and what I would argue is that the, the, value, the huge asset on the balance sheet of, of, uh, of every company uh, that is that should be on the balance sheet, but is hidden there is habits. Yeah. How many customers have you as a habit uh, and you are therefore the default of, of that uh, customer? Mm -hmm. So think habits over loyalty. Mm-hmm. There's, there's so many things within that, and it kind of. So going back to that idea that all models are wrong, but some are useful, and, and sort of the strategy that connects to that too. I would imagine if you go into a, uh, you know, a planning. Well, we'll talk about this too later, but a strategic planning session uh, at some point, and and you sit down and you go, okay, well, we're our objective is to acquire more customers who then we're going to convert to be loyal. And that's how we're going to win. We're going to decrease churn and that kind of thing. But if you then change the question and go, okay, well, how do we get people to be more habitual about us? It's a different thing. It's, it, it changes the strategy, doesn't it? It does. It does. So when your marketing folks come in and say, you know, uh, to get more loyalty, we have got to have a super exciting new brand. You know, our brand and our logo has been around for a long time, and and that's really not what's going to make people really grab onto us. So, so let's do a refresh. Let's change our logo, right? Uh, let's change our brand name. Uh, it used to be green. Let's make it let's make it orange uh, instead. If you had habit in mind. Uh, you would absolutely, positively not do any of that. <laughs> you, you, that would be the last thing you'd do uh, because all mm -hmm. of those things are causing the conscious to have to engage and say the thing we habitually liked, that old thing with the old brand and, the, and uh, with the brand we've known and love, it's not old to me, the brand we know and love that we mm -hmm. really trust, that's gone away. Mm -hmm. It's disappeared. 
it doesn't exist anymore. And so now we ought to think, should I, should I go with this new brand or should I try uh, kind of something else? Because I got to do something new now. So, mm -hmm. so uh, uh, kind of, should I, should I do it? And this isn't just sort of kind of theoretical. Like this, this happened to me. So I'm a sportsaholic, right? And I have my, I had my favorite uh, sports app. Uh, and for one reason or another, I, I used cbssports.com. Uh, and, uh, but cbssports.com kept redoing their kind of their webpage, you know, improving mm -hmm. their, their webpage so that the, so that how you navigated was different. The look and feel was, was different. The last time they did their refresh, cause somebody like said, well, oh, we got to refresh the website and make, make mm -hmm. new my, I just sort of gave up and said, even though I've always used CBS for several years, cbssports.com, I'm now going to troll through the major sports sites and see which I'm going to try out. Mm -hmm. I was gone. And I, I picked ESPN.com, which I probably should have been with anyway, the bigger it's bigger. And, but mm -hmm. they just, yeah. thanks to them improving the website, they lost me because they made me think. They took away mm -hmm. the thing that yeah. my subconscious said, Roger, you want to check the scores. It's mm -hmm. it's a it's a tile on your on your on your iPhone. Don't be an idiot. Click that. Mm -hmm. But my subconscious had to throw in the towel and say, All right, all right, all right, conscious, Roger. Uh, uh, the beloved CBS uh, sports that used to be in that tile has disappeared. And it's mm -hmm. been replaced with something you don't know and you don't understand, and you're going to have to figure out. Mm -hmm. So it's now fair game for me to check out uh, whether there's another there's another uh, website that I uh, that I might try. And yeah. do you think I'm coming back? <laughs> you don't unless, know unless ESPN I, changes unless, everything, it, maybe. <laughs> exactly, unless exactly. ESPN. So possession of a habit is nine tenths of the law or more. And yeah. so ESPN now has got mm. to screw up for me, but then all I'll do is troll around again and CBS yeah, yeah. sports has got a chance, but, uh, but not necessarily an, any kind of uh, advantage. So that's how it's strategy. Changes. You know, that you are yeah. obsessive yeah. about, about, as I say, it's, it's, it's sort of like Hansel and Gretel. You've got to put the breadcrumbs uh, close enough uh, together so people, uh, people don't, get, uh, don't get lost, right? So mm -hmm. CBS Sports could have done a better job of putting the breadcrumbs really closely together and maybe modifying the site 10 times over a year to get it to where it wanted to be, where none of them was so disturbing to me that I had to throw up my hands and, and the mm -hmm. subconscious had to give up and and mm -hmm. and let this conscious the conscious battle uh go on mm -hmm. i i think that even this example that you just provided actually perfect lines up to the question that we had here for you roger and in, in in the book you talk about cumulative advantage yes. um essentially you're suggesting by keeping customers loyal is not about continually adapting to the changing needs but instead helping customers avoid making that choice as you clearly articulated in, in your previous example. Um, is there anything you care to even expand on that even more? Because yeah. I know if there's a marketer that's reading that right now, it's like, well, we have to change to make sure that we are adapting. 
but it's the why you're changing to adapt. Yes. Right? And, 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 to, and how you're doing it, V, how you're doing it is, is yeah. the key. So, so an example, and we, and we, and, uh, uh, we use it in the book is, is, is tied. So if you, if you ask the question, Oh, so tied, tied has followed this, uh, you know, the, the leading, uh, detergent brand in America by far mm-hmm. North America, uh, it's equivalent Ariel leading in, in other parts of, of, of the world. Um, and you'd say, okay, so so they've followed this the, this guideline and haven't changed at all. Well, it, you know, my tide growing up was big boxes of white fluffy powder. Mm-hmm. <laughs> my tide mm-hmm. now is a tub of these cute little pods that have all mm-hmm. the ingredients in it. Massive, massive change, right? Massive change along mm-hmm. yeah. along the way. But what has stayed exactly the same? Packaging. Color. color, yeah, packaging. Color. It's orange logo. Mm-hmm. Yeah, target. Yeah, script. Mm-hmm. The same. Uh, uh, the same. Marketing message, right? This will get your clothes cleaner and whiter, and take care of your clothes. Mm-hmm. If you want to be a good parent and have your kids having clean, clean clothes when they go to school, this will do it. Mm-hmm. So, a consistent message, a consistent positioning through monumental form change that mm-hmm. is cumulative mm-hmm. advantage right so that is 76 yeah. now years of of advantage in mm-hmm. being in, in 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 going along and having uh and having that customer not feel like they've been uh, been jerked around mm-hmm. but it's not without not without uh kind of uh bumps in the road right Mm-hmm. Back in the seventies, when when the first uh, liquid yeah. detergents appeared, uh, Procter and Gamble, super smart guys, said, "You know, uh, this is such a new form. We better have a new brand for this." And so, mm-hmm. Procter and Gamble's first liquid detergent was not uh, Liquid Tide; it was Era. You know, a new era. Mm-hmm. It was a clever name, clever concept, mm-hmm. all of that, all, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It didn't sell at all. It was a disaster. So hmm. here you have the leading powder detergent is going to be blown out because it cannot make the transition to liquid. Lots of people would say, yeah, you know, that's the way it goes. Disruption. What was the clever little thing that they did uh, in response to that? How about having orange bottles with a target on the front the name Tide, and how about calling it something really exotic, weird, and frame-breaking called Liquid Tide, right? Talk about the breadcrumbs being, like the breadcrumbs were touching one another, uh, right? They weren't from yeah, here yeah, or yeah. to the other side of the room. They were touching one another. Yeah. Uh, and what happened? Within a couple of years, Liquid Tide was by far and away the number one selling liquid detergent, mm-hmm. and Tide, Liquid Tide has, has dominated right. uh, that, that, uh, that segment. How about later on you figure out how to how to have Tide wash in cold water as well as it washes in high, uh, uh, hot water, yeah. and you so, so you come up with cold water Tide. You know when they came up with put bleach in it, it was tied with bleach. Cold water Tide. They learned that lesson, the Tide the Tide lesson, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. But but again, clever as they were, they hadn't learned the color lesson, the color cues. And this is something only in the last, again, 15 or 20 years, do we really understand how much color color is a cue to you of that's mm-hmm. familiar because you see the color before you see the logo or the name. 
typically mm-hmm. on the shelf. So because, mm-hmm. because orange is a hot color, you want to mm-hmm. make it a blue uh, bottle, mm-hmm. right? Makes sense, right? What, what does that make sense to? The logical mind, yeah. the 5% above, above the waterline, blue, cold, yeah. yeah, orange, hot, perfect. What does the subconscious say? Ain't familiar. tied, baby. Ain't yeah. tied. Sorry. Disaster. Disaster. Great product. Disaster results. What, what do you think they did? Boom, orange bottle, number one, number one cold water detergent by far, right? So, so these are just, these are just sort of classic, classic, classic examples of, are you appealing to the, the below the waterline subconscious or the conscious? Mm -hmm. And the answer, the answer is you better darn well, uh, uh, appeal to the uh, subconscious or bad things will happen, uh, to you cold water tide just because it's in a blue bottle right is back to the starting line just like i was with my sports apps i was mm-hmm. i was just right back to the starting line saying okay what cold water detergent do i want to use this entirely mm-hmm. new to the world thing called uh, cold water tide in these blue bottles or mm-hmm. or you know whatever unilever's product or or uh, uh, whoever else's uh uh Amers, uh, uh product or henkel's product back to the the starting mm-hmm. line you switch <laughs> you literally switch yeah. it to, to orange and yeah. and there at the starting line you're running the 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 400 meter uh kind of uh, uh dash and you're at you get to start at 300 like who's going to win that one mm-hmm. right yeah you are so why why toss out toss out that huge advantage and get put at the starting line with everybody else it makes me think about going back to the strategy part, like if, if, if you believe in loyalty, then you make potentially bigger risks like the blue bottle or like yeah. the classic Tropicana example where you go, Oh, people are going to keep drinking Tropicana, even if we completely change the packaging. Yeah. But if you believe in habit, <laughs> no. then you go, we can't disrupt that pattern that people yeah. are expecting. Uh, and actually V and I had a conversation a little while ago about, you know, what is a brand? And we were referencing some of the work you've done about generating confidence. And, and I think yes. there's a connection there too, right? About you're trying to keep the confidence that you have with people so they don't have to think and they can just use the brand as the shortcut to go, okay, I know it's going to be cleaner. It's going to work great. It's all those other things that have been built up in my mind. And yes. now it's liquid or now it's cold. Or, but, and so you're more protective yeah. if you think about habit, I would imagine. Yes, yes, you are. But again, the thing to remember, all the things that you said, uh, Mark, of what, what the mind is thinking are, are, are almost entirely subconscious, right? Sure. So the, the, mind, the mind isn't consciously thinking um, mm-hmm. uh, all those things you thought. It's, mm-hmm. you, you, you've won when, it, when the subconscious is just saying. And the, and the subconscious will, will kind of run the show. And, yeah. and, and until you shatter the subconscious, right? Yeah. So cbssports.com shattered my subconscious, right? right. Uh, it, it, my subconscious had to say, I give up here. Yeah. Conscious, yeah. you go, you go do whatever the hell you want because they took away, 
they made it impossible for me to have the thing that I, the subconscious wanted. I just wanted to tap on that tile and I mm -hmm. wanted it to open up and look the way it always looked. And they mm -hmm. took that away. So I give up, go just, just fit, what, do whatever you want. It's, it's almost mm -hmm. like that, that, that's, that's what the sub subconscious uh, does. Um, and that's what, and, that, and then that's what my subconscious does every time. So yeah. I grew up in an era where Holiday Inn, we went, we went on road trips as a family and I stayed at Holiday Inns and I loved the Holiday Inn, Holiday Inn logo. Right. And then mm -hmm. they, then some, some branding expert kind of changed it. Mm -hmm. right? And, and it, it, it's funny. It's, that was about 10 or 15 years ago and it still pisses me off whenever I see it. <laughs> I hate that. Logo. <laughs> I hate it. Right. <laughs> And, yeah. and it's irrational, right? Like I should yeah. get over it. This is not, I don't stay in holiday inns anymore. It, it's, it's not, it's not terribly relevant <laughs> to my life. But every time yes. I'm driving by and seeing that logo, and I say, what did those idiots do to my, yeah, exactly, to my, to my logo? I'm not rational. That's, that's my subconscious saying, you took it away. Yeah. You took something away, yeah. threw it in the dumpster and replaced it with that. Yeah. That. You took my thing away and replaced it yeah. with that. So I will never forgive them for my yeah. subconscious one. Not that it matters to them, wow. but yeah, but yeah, <laughs> it's, it's, it's visceral. That's, that's why I make the yeah. point. It's really, it's really visceral because, and, and, and all of this has to do with, with what we now know about the brain. The brain uh, is the biggest user of energy in the body. You think it's your mm -hmm. legs and, and your arms, uh, whatever, walking to work and your 10,000 steps. Mm -hmm. Nope. It's your brain used 25% mm -hmm. of the energy on a day. And so we have been mm -hmm. designed to turn that high energy burner off as much as possible. Right. Mm -hmm. But just think about yeah. it. Think, think about driving to driving to work. Do you guys drive to work? Well, lately, in the last two years, not, 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 really, COVID. not anymore. <laughs> you drive, drive to work. Just think about the, sure. path yeah, yeah, the, yeah. the path to get, getting then yeah. to work or getting to going to class or going to going to play squash yeah. or tennis or something. You know, um, yeah. like if if you if your mind had to think about, OK, the steering wheel now turn the steering wheel a little bit here because mm -hmm. we're going, oh, we got to turn it, oh, uh, turn it back, whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and oh, oh, we got to be thinking about uh, is it a left turn coming up or a right? you'd be exhausted by the time you get to tennis. Right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. But and if you're going to the same sure, tennis, right? tennis, tennis. <laughs> but if you're going, if you're, sure. if you've done it, I remember getting there. Yeah, Sorry. exactly. No, exactly. <laughs> yeah. You, 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 uh, because your subconscious is, has, has complete, uh, uh, completely in, uh, in control of it. It knows how much to jiggle the steering wheel at every time and how much, mm -hmm, what, yeah. whatever. <clears throat> and, and it's, it's, it's in some sense doing that so that if there's a little old lady uh, kind of uh, crossing the road on a red light, yeah. that your conscious has got enough, uh, enough yeah. sort of, you know, energy to say, boom, we got to go off mm -hmm. plan here completely. Your subconscious yeah. is mad, right? It's like, mm -hmm. you know, God, this is annoying. <laughs> we, this little old lady, um, mm -hmm. but your conscious uh, can, can act. So you don't want your conscious exhausted um yeah. uh and the way we, we deal with that is our, our is automaticity that our that mm -hmm. our that our yeah. brain uh does as much as possible totally automatically 
As the way you're both speaking, another example came to my head in terms of like a fireplace. We have a pilot light that's always on, yes. right? Yep. Before you actually ignite the fireplace to actually use it. You'd never want to use the fireplace 100% of the time because of all the energy it burns. It, it takes obviously a lot out of one. So I kind of see that kind of like yeah. the automis, automaticity that you're talking about yeah. is literally like the pilot light being on. And when you need that burner on, well, that's when you, you need, it gets called upon, but you can't have that burner on all the time. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and that's a cool advance to cars, right? Right. You know, my, my, my vehicle now, you know, when I'm, when I'm sitting at a stoplight, uh, turn, turns the engine off, but it's mm -hmm. the minute I, 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 I touch the pedal, it's already geared up to say, we, we've got to get started, yeah. uh, started again, mm -hmm. but it doesn't use the energy while I'm sitting at, sitting at a stoplight. Yeah. It's such a fascinating area because especially when you think about, you know, the, going back to the customer centricity part and, and how many people and businesses talk about that. Um, I, I, it, one of the things about the model that you're talking about, about building, it really makes you think differently about how customers actually behave and not just that they're going to be loyal and they're going to come to us and that you just got to make these people like, you know, religious fanatics of our brand it's not that it's just habit and it's yeah. so much subtler and it I, it's fascinating and, and and i would and i would argue mark that that many of these customer centric companies are centered on the customer's conscious mm -hmm. right they'll do all this thing these things for the customer's conscious right, right? but they ignore their customers uh, unconscious. Right. They're actually nasty to the customers unconscious and, and, and they can be nasty in, in, in kind of intriguing ways. So, so the, the commercials that tend to win at, at the con, you know, every year there's a, just like mm -hmm. the con film festival, there's a con a commercial festival, you know, will win the golden uh, lion for the best commercials. All those commercials are always sophisticated, complicated storylines Right, that get, that gets you laughing, or 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 uh, or uh, what have you, and they're they're what wins. There is no mm -hmm. correlation between what wins and what's effective. Mm -hmm. And the reason is the reason is most of them are far too complicated for the the customer, uh, the customer's uh, subconscious to mm -hmm. to care about and 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 follow. Mm -hmm. That's why the best commercials show the subconscious in simple ways what you want the subconscious to do mm. that's why beer commercials what is the feature of virtually every beer commercial you've ever seen in your life what do people in the beer commercial do they're always partying yeah having fun drink beer mm -hmm. is the answer and drink beer yeah drink beer yeah right in all different and, kind of scenarios and, yeah yes and and what's even better, you know, uh, uh, I, I pay attention to odd things, but but there's a, li uh, a liqueur called Di Serono. Uh, mm -hmm. you know. mm -hmm. They've had the cleverest of uh, the cleverest ads from my uh, perspective, uh, because the ads are are simply somebody at a bar saying, "I'll have a Di Serono, please." Mm -hmm. The more literal you can be in instructing mm -hmm. the subconscious, the better. Mm -hmm. That is mm -hmm. simple. And it tells the subconscious what to do. There should be many more ads 
uh, of, of a person in a, a grocery store, let's say, or mm -hmm. kind of a Walmart, the ad is simply a person picking off the, off the shelf, your product and putting it in their cart. Yeah. It's like now for the truth, conscious, like you'd say, well, that's, that's boring. Boring is good for the subconscious. Mm -hmm. Boring is extremely uh, good because mm -hmm. the subconscious wants comfort and the subconscious wants, mm -hmm. wants simple connections. Uh, mm -hmm. And so, so next time you watch that, like a sophisticated ad that caught, that re requires you to sit like a 60 second one that requires you to sit through it and, and understand the storyline and, and, mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and you finally get to the point, you know, Mm -hmm. One in fifty people are probably actually actually listening with enough care uh, to mm -hmm. that ad for it to have any impact. But it'll win an award, and people will say, mm -hmm. "Yeah, that's so clever." Oh, wasn't that funny? Yeah, 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 yeah right. <laughs> Roger, in terms of simple connections, uh, you just mentioned. Um, I just wanted to make this simple connection and, and talk about a couple of the other sections of the book. So you made a connection or I before mentioned strategic planning, uh, which is often combined. And, and in the book, strategy, planning, and execution are three separate chapters. Um, yes. And it's a really compelling case that you make that strategy and execution are the same, but strategy and planning are not. And yet we always say strategic planning together, and we always do the strate annual strategic plans. Can you talk about that part of it? Just why sure. they're different? Or, or why the two are different and why uh, strategy and execution are the same? Sure, sure. So, um, I mean, in some sense, strategy and strategic planning shouldn't be different, but they, they are. And, and that's because what I see in practice in the world of strategic planning is strategic planning is an exercise to come up with a series of initiatives that the company is going to commit to. Uh, and often the way it happens is you have a meeting and you have all the functions or all the regions or all the product areas together. And they all sort of come forward with the, what, what they'd like to spend money or capital on. And you negotiate and come up with a list of things. Okay. So Mark's business, we're going to give $260 million to, cause he wants to build a new plant and these mm -hmm. business, we're going to give $180 million cause he wants to run an ad campaign and blah, 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 blah blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. And so it's, and, and everybody feels super comfortable that, you know, we've, we've hammered it out and we have this set of initiatives, right? Um, and that's, that's de facto the definition of strategic plan that I see in, in practice. All it has to be is a set of initiatives that is agreed upon to go and, and do. Mm -hmm. um, a strategy to me, is an integrated set of choices. So we make a bunch of choices that have the effect of picking a place where we are going to play and therefore places where we're not going to play and a theory for how we are going to be better there than anybody else who's in that space. Right? Mm -hmm. um, and those two are different things. Um, what that set that is, is integrated, not a list. It, ha it has a specific outcome in mind, a competitive outcome in mind, right? That we will in that space 
be superior to our competitors. The others has no outcome in mind other than we are going to we're going to finish the initiative. Mark is going to build his factory, and we will pat Mark on the back if he if it comes in at, at two hundred sixty million, not two hundred eighty or three hundred because you you didn't manage the budget enough. Mm-hmm. V, mm-hmm. if his uh, advertising campaign is one hundred eighty million and he gets these many gross rating points that he planned in, in that. The outcome, the outcome mm-hmm. there has little, if anything, to do with with a competitive uh, outcome, um, and that's why, kind of, most strategic plans don't accomplish, kind of what the company sort of generally hopes for. Right, the company has sort of a general hope for: if we do all these things, things will be better, things will be good, um, mm-hmm. but they typically aren't because because. Uh, there wasn't any sort of standard applied to them other than uh, V thinks that an advertising campaign is good and V is going to go out and do his advertising ca- uh, campaign. That's the, the, the totality of the logic uh, behind it. Mm-hmm. And I would say the vast majority of initiatives I've ever seen on the many, you know, 40 years of seeing strategic plans uh, there's very few that you could sort of argue independently of that thing. It's a really stupid idea, right? So they are, mm-hmm. they tend to be sensible, laudable, right. as I say, it's a laudable list. Um, mm-hmm. But then they don't add up. If you add them up and say, well, where will we be versus our competition? The answer is typically mm-hmm. the hell if I know, uh, there, that isn't a, that isn't a concern, and what's the problem with that? It's because somebody else is thinking about strategy, and they're thinking about doing things that will make sure that after Vass's advertising campaign is finished and and your factory is built, that your factory is doesn't have the cost position necessary to support the the outcome that you want, and Vass's a- advertising campaign was one eighth as big as the dominant competitor he's going after and will be completely washed mm-hmm. out and nothing good will happen to your financials or your market share or your, the, your, the, the degree to which customers prefer, prefer you. And that's, mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. why the vast majority of strategic planning is just is a delusional waste of time. The delusion is if we do this list, good things will happen. It, it won't unless you're uh, competing against dreadful companies, which in some industries is is true. So you get away with it. But in the minute you're competing against somebody awesome, uh, they will simply eat your lunch. I mean, simply and clearly eat your lunch. Hmm. That's a <clears throat> that's a very interesting point there. And I think to try to make this tangible for the marketers that are listening. Um, would you suggest, and again, you've advised for some of the biggest companies here in, in North America, but the strategy that need to be done annually, or is, do you add a time frame to that to do it the right way in your experience? What have you seen, seen that works well, for organizations? Sure. Well, what I, what I say is, is strategy should be a problem solving exercise, right? So you should use strategy as a tool whenever you have a problem and by problem, I mean a gap between what you wish would happen and what is happening Mm -hmm. now, the results you're achieving now versus what you wish. 
And anytime there's a gap between those two things, um, you should you should engage in a strategy exercise about that problem. And and mm-hmm. you know, Vass, if you're running the the widget business uh, and it's part of Mark's huge conglomerate, um, and you've got a problem in the widget business, you shouldn't wait for Mark to say, "Oh, Vass, Vass, it's it's strategy time." It's it's yeah. it's uh, yeah. it's October. It's strategy time. You should just, independent of anything that that Mark is saying, should say, "I got a problem. I've got to ask mm-hmm. what's a set of choices that would put us in a position that is what I want rather than what I'm getting." Mm-hmm. So Fair there enough. is no, I, I cannot give any time frame cycle to it. Uh, it mm-hmm. it is it yeah. is four four problems. Um, and, and for that reason, I think, I think in any large company, there's, should be strategy kind of work going on perpetually because mm-hmm. there's going to be some yeah. business that, that has got some, uh, kind of challenge or some region or some function that needs to be thinking, mm-hmm. uh, thinking about it. And once you get into that, if everybody in the organization is solving problems by making choices all the time in due course, right, you will have a powerful, uh, successful company. Right. Yeah. You've got this great line in here about strategy and um, about what counts isn't what's true. It's what would have to be true. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I can you, can you so expand on that. Sure, sure. So, what what everything has sort of an origin story, I guess, and the origin of of the strategy field, business strategy, not military strategy, was Bruce Anderson, in my view, the founder of Boston Consulting Group, founded it in 1963, and. BCG was founded as an extremely analytical firm, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, They would, in the early days, because it was Boston-based, they would go to Harvard Business School and hire the Baker Scholars, who were the best analysts, and they liked engineers as undergrads and and, and, uh, Baker Scholars from Harvard uh, Business School. And since they were monumentally successful, uh, the industry sort of kind of followed that. Um, And what that meant is that the focus was on analyzing so as to be able to determine what is true right mm-hmm. so let's let's analyze all our product lines oh this one is more uh, kind of uh, profitable than that one or in the case of bcg let's look at the learning curve and see what our cumulative production have been in our cost uh, path and let's look at that for for all of our other competitors um so it's analyzing the past mm-hmm. right? And that's asking what's true. Mm-hmm. Uh, now that's not kind of completely uninteresting, but it doesn't help you create the future, mm-hmm. right? If you think about it, analyzing mm-hmm. what's true today does not help you create something that does not now exist, right? You don't mm-hmm. you don't create right. the iPod on the basis of analyzing the past. Um, yeah. What you have to do is imagine possibilities in the future. And then ask mm-hmm. the question, well, what would have to be true for that to come about, right? Um, because right. the greatest strategies make things true that weren't true 
already. Mm -hmm. So, and you have a MP3 player with a little wheelie on it that's white and have people pay three times as much for it as equally technically good uh, MP3 uh, players and get the dominant market share and expand the MP3 player business dramatically. Can, can, mm -hmm. can you do that? And the answer is kind of like, no, no, unless you make something true that was not cur uh, currently true. Mm -hmm. You make it super easy for people to download songs onto that little uh, wheelie thing uh, so that the experience is completely different than anything they have now. And that mm -hmm. means creating, creating an iTunes uh, kind of store and a system for doing that. So mm -hmm. you make something true that simply wasn't. There was no way to do that on your MP3 player before the mm -hmm. iPod. Didn't exist, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, the kludgy way you had to get stuff on it was you had to, you had to take your own music and, 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 and uh, you know, hook up the cables and, and put it onto the machine. You couldn't sort of download it in some in simple fa fa fashion at a buck a song. Mm -hmm. So what you have to ask is what would have to be true for this to be an awesome idea, for this mm -hmm. to be an awesome thing that succeeds, so that you can ask the question, can we make those things true? And mm -hmm. in the case of Steve Jobs, said, yes, we can. We can set up this service. We can do the con cont contractual deals with all the record companies and blah, blah, blah. And we'll split it from albums down to individual songs, blah, 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 blah. Off you go. And you make a bunch of things true. And that's what great strategy is. Mm -hmm. But to figure out what you need to make true, you have to ask the question, what would have to be true for this idea to be a super successful idea. Yeah. And that's why it's the most important question in the strategy. What would happen? Yeah, it's so interesting. And it kind of connects to, well, it does connect a lot to the, what we were talking about in the last podcast, but we were talking about data and it's always in the past and then innovation. And, and, and in this book, like this is the part where you, like you literally spell out almost step-by-step step the whole workshop on, on how to come up with, possibilities yeah. which is amazing yeah, yeah. um yeah. and one of the and the, one of the examples you or i think the example was with oil valet and they created five possible outcomes for the brand it's almost like the way i was thinking of it it's almost like you're creating scenarios where you're probing for data points that would point you in a direction that would help you um de-risk a, a, a potential solution or or um eliminate ones that are you know, obviously not great. Like maybe it wasn't possible for various reasons to do an iTunes yeah. store. Um, absolutely. Why, absolutely. Why, why is it so important to have multiple choices? Well, um, <laughs> I guess I, I, I don't listen to a whole lot of people, but I listen to, I listen to some of the greats and that's because Aristotle said so, <laughs> uh, the greatest scientist okay. in the history of man, mankind, uh, said, said, a smart dude for sure yeah smart smart <laughs> in uh, so many ways it's scary but but um so so what he what he says is 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 that sort of humans can operate in in two modes in two sort of domains one is the domain of where things cannot be other than they are right so mm -hmm. so i often say you know I've, I've got a pen in my pen in my hand and i let go of it uh it falls you know why does it fall that falls because mm -hmm. there's a universal force called gravity. Is that universal force going to be around next week? 
Yeah. Mm -hmm. Next mm -hmm. week. Yeah. A hundred years from now. Yeah. yeah. In that part of the world, right. Um, anything that you analyze in the past is fully representative of what will happen in the future. So when we did a whole bunch of observation of how pens fall, we came to the conclusion that there is a universal force called gravity. Uh, if we let them go, here's how fast it accelerates so that we can mm -hmm. estimate speed, all of that kind of stuff. That's human's job. But Aristotle said there's another part of the world where things can be other than they are. And that's the world that business is in, right? <laughs> you know, think of all the products and services that you have now that you didn't have when you were a teenager, right? It's constantly changing. Right. Mm -hmm. And so in, he said in that part of the world, uh, the job of human beings is not to analyze, to determine the cause of the effects that we see. It's to imagine possibilities, possibilities for what could be, what could be that does not now exist. And then choose the one for which the most compelling argument can be made. Mm -hmm. So I go for multiple possibilities because Aristotle said so, right? Mm -hmm. Aristotle said it should be a contest between possibilities. Mm -hmm. And he had a whole bunch of instruction on how you should run that contest, essentially. Mm -hmm. What you want to do is make an argument for, for each one. And mm -hmm. I make the argument, the, the methodology that I've created for that, for that uh, is to ask the question, what would have to be true? So mm -hmm. you lay out in, in the most, in the most, clear and simple terms, what is the logic behind it? Because mm -hmm. it's in the future. We have no data about it yet, right? So mm -hmm. it's a competition among the, the logics of, of various possibilities. And if you have only one possibility, the chances are you're just going to fall in love with it because it's your only hope, if you will. Uh, mm -hmm. And I, that's why I prefer to have multiple. Um, and I mean, I guess the other thing, because I do all this work in integrative thinking that I've noticed with having multiple possibilities is that often by having them, uh, you can combine them in ways mm. you wouldn't have thought of until you saw right. the possibilities and say, gee, could we take part of that one and part of that one and create this, this, uh, this new one? Again, that wouldn't happen if you only have one possibility that you're thinking about. So that's why right. I have multiple possibilities. When, when Mark and I were, were going back comparing notes and, and whatnot, there was one subtle thing that I think kind of came to life, if you will, for, for both of us. And it, it does, it's actually perfect in the sense of what you're currently articulating. But, you know, as marketers, what we're going to usually do, we're going to look at things from a problem statement. Issue that problem statement that we're going to go off and strategize and mm -hmm. whatnot. Are we out to lunch? in suggesting that it's maybe not so much identifying that problem statement, but it's reframing that thought process and saying, maybe we need to identify the problem statement as a choice instead. So what are those choices that you need to, you want to create for your brand, your service, whatever the case may be, and then solve for that versus being so maybe myopic and just trying to tackle this one problem in this one way. Um, did, did we potentially understand yes. the literature in the, in the, in that context? No, no, no. You, I mean, I think your understanding is very, is, is very good. I, I often think of, def, uh, of just 
imagining choices. So I, I, I do believe that you should start with the problem and say, because that's sort of your objective function. If, if I can't make that problem go away, what the yeah. hell have I done mm-hmm. uh, here anyway? Or if I've made it worse, you know, that's good, fair. You know, well, that wasn't, that wasn't yeah. much worse. So, so start with the problem, but you've sort of crossed the proverbial Rubicon when you frame a choice, right? It's so, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know what that, that, that uh, paper mill in in that you know single business town is not making money right um we uh, uh you know we have a problem there mm-hmm. and, and you mm-hmm. can just sort of say well that's just a problem and let's study the problem my my going to say let's let's imagine choices we can make we mm-hmm. shut it down mm-hmm we have to toss right. all those people in that town out of work, destroy the mm-hmm. destroy the town. You say, "Whoa, okay, that's a real choice." Or we could invest two billion dollars into, you know, tearing it down and, and building the most state of the art thing. But that's two billion dollars, and we'd have to issue some more debt to do or whatever whatever right. it is. At that point, you say, "Yeah, okay, dokie." Here we have got a really big choice, and you get very serious about the fact that it's a choice of that magnitude that you're going to have to make. So you've sort of crossed the Rubicon. You can't kind of go back and say, oh, let's mm-hmm. uh, let's get a group to study that. It's sort mm-hmm. of like, oh, no, 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 no. We've got, to, we've got to make a choice here. So reframing your problem as a choice. And, and the, way I, the way I say it to people is, is, is think of the outcomes you're achieving now, whatever, whatever they are, they're a function of all the choices you've made in the past. Mm-hmm. You may have made a choice 25 years ago that is partially a choice that you made three years ago, a choice that you made last week. All of those choices together put you where you are now. And mm-hmm. we know the definition of insanity, right? Is, is I think you, you do more of the same yeah, and get a different result. You're right. Yeah. You know, so those yeah. choices are very unlikely to get you a different, a markedly different result. I mean, it may evolve yeah. a little bit, but, but, but remarkably. So, so therefore, if you want that outcome to change to something closer than to your aspiration, you will need to make a new set of choices. Let's imagine different choices that you could make that would have the possibility of making that go away. I'm not saying, I'm not saying just give me choices that you are absolutely positively sure and have all the data to say it. No, 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 no. Right. Give me, give me yeah. anything. And, and, you know, if I'm facilitating this and, 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 you know, Mark and Vass come up with really close to home ones, I'll be saying to people, okay, okay, that's, that's okay. I want crazy. Mm-hmm. I want crazy. I'm not going to, I'm not going to stop until I get something that everybody here thinks that's kind of crazy. So I try to encourage people to, to imagine possibilities that create a dispersion, a greater dispersion Mm -hmm. uh, than what the two of you might've come up with. If you're the plant manager of us and you're the, I don't know, the, the, uh, of VP HR or something, Mark, and both of you sort of are 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 going to be mm-hmm. closer to closer to home. I'd say I want I want something wacky, yeah. and until I get good yeah. dispersion, I will not I will not continue the the exercise. What I like about that is you know, we talk about what would have to be true. And oftentimes, when you say something to somebody, think outside of the box or come up with crazy, then then it, it's so easily dismissed because there's no substance yeah. behind it. 
Yeah. But then when you say and, what would have to be true, it yeah. it forces you to be a bit more disciplined in your approach to yeah. crazy because yes, it is crazy <laughs> from where we're at today, but it is possible if we were able to do blah, blah, blah. Yes. No, you're, you're absolutely right. Two, two things I would say to that is one, when facilitating that kind of discussion, if anybody says anything negative about somebody's possibility, I slap them down really hard. Uh, mm-hmm. I just say, that's not that. Sorry, that's not allowed. That's not on. Uh, mm-hmm. And why? It's not trying to protect the, the idea from, from uh, being processed uh, appropriately, but that's not helpful uh, uh, now, mm-hmm. right? And it's because of what you said, Mark. What I want instead to do is say the positive thing, which is what would have to be true? Because mm-hmm. every idea is a great idea, right? If mm-hmm. a set of things are true, right? Mm-hmm. We can worry yeah. later yeah. about whether those things are or not true. In fact, in the next step, we will. But what I want to have is everybody on the same page saying everybody, even the most skeptical. So V, let's say you think Mark's idea is insane. I still mm-hmm. want you, V, to be able to say, I would put my hand on my heart and do Mark's idea if this were true about the industry and about customers and about capabilities and about our, uh, our competitors. That set of things were true. And I won't stop yeah. until yeah. the most skeptical person, V, in this case, agrees that he would support that fully 100% if the following were true. Because then you have mm-hmm. the logic all laid out where you have an entire yeah. management team all saying, we agree 100% on the logic. Those, mm-hmm. If those things were true, we'd do it. Then then I, I do turn, turn around, do a 180 and say, okay, V, of all those uh, things we've just listed, those nine things we just listed that would have to be true, what are you most worried about it, uh, being true? And V mm-hmm. might say, customers don't believe that. Customers will not care. They will not give a damn about that. And and mm-hmm. so that house of cards is going to fall down. I think fen- fantastic. But Mark, mm-hmm. Mark here thinks that customers will. Mm-hmm. How are we going to get, how are we going to get that question, some insight into that question mm-hmm. so that we will know whether that thing that would have to be true is so unlikely to be true. We got to eliminate that option. Or while that might not be true today, here's how we could spend 25 million or 50 million or something to make that true. In which case V you'd start to feel, "Mm -hmm, you know what, if we can do that, that would be good. Whereas if your initial response was that stupid. And if I let Mm -hmm. you do play the, that stupid card, and eliminate that before we ask what would have to be true. That one is in the mists of time and it's gone forever and it had never had a chance. That's why I say I want to have a possibility kill itself, not be killed by a person, right? Right. A possibility kills itself if if Mark and V say, well, here's here's the kind of uh, the customer exploration we need to do on on this front. We go out and do some work, uh, do some prototyping or do a mm-hmm. test, a test pilot, and, and it comes back a disaster, right? Then Mark, yeah. Mark, not V, will say, ah, damn it, I thought that had a shot, but it, but it, but it uh, didn't. 
And then Mark is yeah. not spending the rest of his life saying V is na- the nasty guy who killed my idea, right? <laughs> Damn you, V. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sorry, man. <laughs> but that's what you want to avoid. You want to have yeah. a, a management team who build together, right? right? And get yeah. more together as a team as yeah. you go forward rather than get more and more at, at, at each other kind yeah. of butting, uh, butting heads. Roger, I know we have about That's five minutes left. Um, so yeah. I, I want to be respectful of your time, but uh, connecting to this idea was this other section about knowledge work, which is fascinating. Mm-hmm. And we're not going to get mm-hmm. into it too deep. But but as we're talking sure. about making choices, it's I, I never made the connection until as we were having this conversation um, now. But like with all these choices, you now have to make decisions eventually, which is the process yes. that you're kind of outlining. <laughs> And you talk about how, you know, there's this rise of knowledge workers. And we've all kind of heard that from back in the day in Peter Drucker, but you've got some numbers in terms of SG&A versus COGS showing like the investments in knowledge work. And now this leading to decision factories. And so there's an output and an efficiency that you could look at when you're looking at an organization. Um, I just thought maybe you could touch on that because it's such an interesting idea and about yeah. knowledge work and about how it's different. Sure, sure. Well, I mean, I, I guess I'd, I'd like to step back and ask if you've got a big company. I don't know. Let's say, let's say you've got a, a a big bank like one of the big Canadian banks, the Royal Bank or Bank of America mm-hmm. in the U.S. You've got you've got traditional factories. Those are called branches or service factories, right? Uh, and, and, and they can operate and people walk into them and do transactions and whatever. But then you've got these big office towers in Toronto or Charlotte, uh, mm-hmm. North Carolina for B of, B of A. Um, what happens in those office towers? Uh, and the way I think about it is they don't manufacture services or products, right? They don't, those are manufactured in branches or they're manufactured in factories for if it's a Procter and Gamble or a Ford or a Lego and other companies I work with, they, they've got actual factor factories making physical products. What do those people in the office towers do? What I would say is they manufacture decisions. Hmm. Right? They're the people who manufacture decisions. They manufacture decisions about what are we going to produce at what price? How are we going to market it? What R and D are we going to do to improve it? Those are all, choices that those people uh, manufacture that guide what goes on in the actual actual uh, uh, product or service factories. And so I'm then intrigued to ask, well, how does the, that, that factory factory run? Well, you've got, you've got raw materials that, that, uh, that you, that they have, those tend to be like figures and data and, and reports. Mm -hmm. And then, and then they manufacture partially finished goods, which are things like reports, uh, that they've come up with. And then they, then they have, uh, they have a, a a manufacturing process, which is called a meeting where you get together and talk about (laughs) the, uh, report and you have, you have finished, finished (laughs) goods, which are, which are supposedly decisions that that you haven't done anything with. And then, and then you take those finished goods and, and, and kind of take take action on them. And and then I asked the question, compared to like a really, like a branch, if we're talking about B of A or Royal Bank, 
Um, how efficient is that? So if, if a teller or a customer service rep as they are now, customer service rep is serving a, serving a customer and the customer brings some stuff to them and they, they perform an operation and then have to say to the customer, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if, if, I, if I'm actually going to deposit that for you. Could you go over there and wait for a couple of hours while I decide whether I'm really certain or not? And I'm going to talk to some of my other <laughs> colleagues about whether I'm going to, I'm going to deposit that in the account you want or, or, or not. And so the person sits back back there and then, then comes back to us later and says, <laughs> you know, we're getting close. We're getting close to, to, to a, a vision here, but, but we, but, but we're thinking more about it. Like, that, you know, that, that customer would a never come back or b punch you in the face or do something. Oh, the only Will Smith does that. Uh, uh, Will Smith will do that. So it would be unthinkable, but that's what happens all the time in the knowledge factory. That's true. Yeah. Uh, you know, the decision factory uh, is you have massive amounts of rework. Where you come and get together to make a decision, and then you don't, uh, and you send people back to do more rework and everything. So, so I, I think uh, the interesting thing is that now there are more of the wage bill for most companies tends to be in the uh, in the uh, decision factories than the product or service factories, and they're run horribly, mm-hmm. and unbelievably inefficiently, and that's why. In my, my view, that's why productivity growth has slowed down so much. There are more people in the places where the productivity is horrible and not getting any better any uh, soon. And so it's it. Uh, and 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 what I think we need to do is is uh, and I and I talk about it in, in the book is is completely rethink the way our decision factories uh, work. Rather than trying to sort of optimize them in their current form, it's to it's to rethink them uh, entirely. Yeah, such good take. I, I, like it's so interesting uh, seeing all these individual. And I love the book also because it, you can read each section. You don't have to. It's not a beginning to end book. You yeah, kind of choose yeah. your own adventure. No, it's great. Yeah, I hope it's sort of like a manual that people will keep on their on their shelf to pull out when they say, "Didn't wasn't there a chapter about I'm about to make a capital investment decision? Isn't there a chapter on how to think about mm-hmm. think think about that?" And they pull it out, and and then you know each chapter is probably what do you think? I don't know, twenty to thirty minute read maybe for a chapter, yeah. so they can pull it up and and in twenty yeah. or th- uh, thirty minutes uh, read about that chapter rather than having to commit themselves <laughs> to I'm gonna in order to solve this problem I'm gonna have to read this entire book and that's gonna be you know whatever uh, a day ten hours or, or, yeah. or, or a day and a half or, or something like like that so that that's that's the hope it's a reference guide to better models for better better uh, decisions so great. Thanks, Roger. This was awesome. This was awesome. Well, you guys are so much fun. Um, I, I enjoyed doing the last one. I enjoyed doing this one. I'm, I would be happy to do another one. That'd be great. We'll definitely chat with you again soon. Well, we'll yeah. be in touch for sure. Is there, <laughs> so, and, and I mean, Amazon, I know it will be available then. What's the date that it will be available for everyone? Uh, May 3rd is the, is the pub date. So you can pre-order on Amazon and lots of other places. Uh, uh, right now, and and uh, I I look forward to I look forward to hearing back. One of the f- funner things about writing uh, is that well, people will will uh, write me stuff about 
the book asks questions about it. So uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to May yeah. 3rd as it, as it gets in more people's uh, hands. And I'm glad to see you know, the, the physical copies just arrived uh, last week. And so I'm glad yeah. you guys have, uh, have your physical <laughs> copies. It'll be fun to have that in people's, uh, people's hands very soon. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, we'll make sure that we link to it and everything as well. So um, yeah, this was awesome, Roger. Really appreciate you taking the time once Not again. Not at all. You take care, gentlemen. Time for the post-pod discussion with Mark and V. <laughs> we always do this. We start talking and then we're like, shit, we got to hit record. <laughs> like, oh my gosh, remember, this is why yeah. we do the post-pod. Yeah. to talk about it. What an amazing yeah. book. What an amazing it is, book. It is a really good book. I, I He talks about it too. I mean, there's... The I love books where you can do something with it. Um, yes, and, and literally, there's the in the strategy section. Like I almost wanted to break down the workshop, or what I imagine the workshop, or like a process, yeah. if you want to call it, about generating strategic choices. Um, because you can literally take almost the template from his book and put it into your powerpoints or your slides or whatever, yeah. and yeah. create that framework uh or, or steal his framework uh, it's so good it's uh, you know it's <laughs> i'm trying to put it in a very simplified way like going through this book for me was not only as we were prepping for you know for for the podcast i was reading it differently because i'm trying to mm -hmm. pull nuggets to create questions and whatnot so you're really kind of thinking about it going through the literature maybe not in the same capacity as if you were just reading the book Mm -hmm. I'm going to go back and read the book for mm -hmm. just simply reading and trying to absorb as much as I can, because, you know, we mm -hmm. focus on three key areas, which are, you know, I think he does a found like an incredible job in articulating and really kind of giving us it's our readers yeah. our listeners, if you will, a lot of great frameworks, but there's so much nuggets in here. And between the two podcasts, you could see a lot of the ties, you know, mm -hmm. we, we, he talked about Aristotle again. Right. And mm -hmm. it's one of those things where, there's, this is not linear. Mm -hmm. Anything that's in this book can be applied by executives, by directors, mm -hmm. managers, you can, you can mold it. And actually it's been written in a way that for everyone to, to really understand. So in my opinion, this is like a, uh, I don't know, call it a Bible mm -hmm. for management and strategic thinking here for the next 10, 15 years. Totally. Yeah, I think so. I think that's a hundred percent accurate. And, and I, I mean, there's, we covered like a very surface level depth of, of totally. some of the like big topics. I mean, we got into probably the customer the most, um, but I mean, there's just so much depth to this and, and especially uh, like, I'm just looking through some of these quotes. I mean, um, that we were given, like it literally is a how-to guide for building organizations, right? Yeah. Like it's really, really interesting. There's, and it, it because of his experience in consulting and um, working with other organizations like mm -hmm. PG, like Lego, like you Ford. know these big Ford. I mean, it's not theoretical either. It's no. I mean, I think you know, going back to that example, oh, there's tons of examples from PG. Like literally, the work that he did with PG yeah. on oil valet is in the book. Like it's not. Yeah. It's a it's a legitimate case study. It's not a thought experiment. No, it's no. so good. 
Well, I really, for me, and I, I know we talked on talked about it in the pod as well, but there, there's a reason I kind of really emphasize that cumulative advantage because I think that that notion really spoke to me in mm-hmm. a way that, you know, not only did it make it tangible because he brought really great examples. He talked about MySpace and Facebook, right? Mm-hmm. What created that change when MySpace was the company that was running the show at the time, but then you mm-hmm. had Facebook that was designed for habit. You know, there's a lot mm-hmm. of consistency in UI. You know, there's a lot of things that go into mm-hmm. that. And, you know, he, t- he touches on, what was it? Four things under cumulative, uh, adapt- uh, sorry, cumulative advantage. It's like, it's important to be able to become popular early. That always helps. Mm-hmm. But you have to make sure you're designing for habit. Then you stay innovative within the brand and then keep mm-hmm. communicative simple. Any communication mm-hmm. simple. Mm-hmm. That framework it's very simple. How do you actually set up your brand? Mm-hmm. How do you set up that cumulative advantage? Well, here's how. Mm-hmm. These four things. This is what you do. Mm-hmm. So you're talking about a workshop. Well, when you're having a strategy meeting, hey, guys, we need to create a cumulative advantage. Let's define these four things. Yeah. I don't know yeah. how easier that gets. Yeah. And the other part that I really like about the book is is that it builds on a lot of other ideas that are out there. Um or, or integrates them, maybe not builds on, but integrates them at the very least. Like, um, you know, I, I've mentioned uh, Ehrenberg Bass Institute and a lot of the work that yeah. they've been doing. And and so, I mean, there's stuff in there that I think is really, really valuable uh, from the Ehrenberg Bass Institute, which, you know, specifically around the ideas of loyalty and said differently from Roger, but the idea of habit versus loyalty, what he's yeah. saying is, uh, you know, it's, there's some, I mean, you can you can go into the literature now and see all the publications from the Ehrenberg Bass Institute, the scientific journals and everything, marketing research that articulate the proof points of what Roger's talking about. Yeah. So I love how that connects. And then there's Dan Arelli, who's done a lot of work uh, in the behavioral economist group of people um, yeah. on cumulative advantage. Um, I'm trying to remember the name of the, the model, but it, I mean what I like about what Rogers is saying is that it's a very practical application of all of these other ideas. Yeah. Um, and so for anyone that's interested in Ehrenberg Bass or in, interested in behavioral economics, I mean, like you're going to love this book for sure. Well, we're creatures of habit. He puts it, you know, right in the book. And I think as, as marketers, do we actually think about habits? We don't. Do we think about, potentially any decision that we make, are we disrupting habits that may have been there or mm-hmm. whatnot? We don't. We're naturally being trained in this, in this mindset that, you know, innovation, keep pushing. What's the next shiny thing. Mm-hmm. It has to happen in moderation. I'm not saying you have to stop evolving. You have to continue to evolve hundred mm-hmm. percent, but it's probably, I think we have to be more conscious of habits around the brand expectations mm-hmm. around the brand and anything that we do say or do from a business perspective, not even a marketing perspective. This is like business stri- strategic business decisions yeah. that may disrupt that. Yeah. I think we have to make sure that we're sounding that horn or, or, you know, from our respective um, spaces and For be sure. like, Hey, this, this may not work because of this habit that's already been established. For sure. I think it's an afterthought. Yeah. I really do. Yeah. Well, and, and some of the, like the idea, the premise of the book really is about, um, I'm trying to find this one quote here about, um, you know, do your models, do you own your models or do your models own you? 
is is kind of the premise of the book. And mm-hmm. and so when you think about like strategic planning as an annual process, I mean that's a yeah. model and that owns I think a big portion of an executive team or any company because of course places that you and I have worked, I think that's a common thing where you go, okay, well it's the time for annual plans. Uh, and and you and there's strategic planning sessions that that happen every year. But it makes you think now when I kind of roll back my memory banks to the meetings that you and I have been in and the ones that we've, you know, separately and together, I mean, very few of them were making decisions. Most of them is just kind of like, okay, well, here's our number for to hit next year. How are we going to do that? And that's, I think to his point, more planning. It's not strategy. And so it really forces us like, unless we're having to choose between two separate options with the goal of, achieving X number of increase, percentage increase in market share or yep. whatever, market penetration. Um, you know, it probably isn't actually strategy. It's probably just planning. I, I love that you brought that up because, first of all, he does a great job in the book to kind of like distinguish between the two things. Um, mm-hmm. And I think you were right in asking this very simple question. It's like, well, I think that businesses naturally put them together. I think one becomes a byproduct of another. So mm-hmm. having a, a sound strategy session, then you have to do a planning session, right? Yeah. How, do, how does this going to, so we've decided on the choice. We've decided on what it is that we're trying to do. Now let's put the wheels in motion, so to speak. Yeah. But I think the problem is they're used interchangeably, right. unfortunately. And that's, that's the nuance. I actually, in this context, Mark, I don't think I've ever had a strategy meeting. In the, in the context yeah. of the way that he's defining yeah. it. Yeah. I don't think I've ever had that. I don't. Th- yeah. I I honestly don't know if I have either. <laughs> like, right? You think, yeah. Like I, I'd have to go. I mean, I really have to think about it and see if there's something. <laughs> Look through my old decks and whatnot. But I, yeah, I don't. I don't know. Because I think in business, it's one of those things that's just become a, a byproduct of a living, um, what's it called, um, part of it, but we're not actually, we're not actually mm-hmm. having those strategic discussions in the same, in the same context by say offering mm-hmm. choice. And yeah. what I loved about the way he positioned this, like problem statements are important, right? But it's reframing yeah. those problem statements into statements of choice. Yeah. That second part is probably the thing that not only is missing because we're like, we're, let's solve this problem. We're, we're, we're suffering or we're hemorrhaging cash or, you know, mm-hmm. we're not able to hit our revenue numbers. Problem mm-hmm. statement. Cool. Go solve it. But the, actually it's so then people will go and try to build up some business cases and, and whatnot and bring it back. Right. But well, what is a desired outcome? So what's choice number one? Well, yeah. making sure that we're profitable. Option yeah. two, doing double digit comp growth again. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, now go solve for those problems. Instead of trying to, you know, just define like, hey, how are we going to increase revenue as an example? Yeah. It actually future-proofs your business because you'll probably come up with five options. Totally. Yeah. And that's where it's like the connection between knowledge work. And we didn't talk about some of his solutions that he talked about for knowledge work, which is um, rather than organizing based on sort of, I'm kind of summarizing what I interpret to be his solution, but, you know, um, organizing departments by how things were created before, which is a hierarchy 
when you have production outputs, you know, when, yeah. when you're investing in widgets and you're having to produce a number of yeah. widgets, you know, you, the organizational structure that is a hangover from that period. Yeah. Uh, and, and the Frederick Winslow Taylor, like, you know, efficiency and of motion kind of studies, you know, you segment people out and instead one of his suggestions is you flow to work rather than like, yeah. rather than having a specific role that you're working in, you could flow to where work is. Mm-hmm. And so you can, uh, more like a Hollywood studio or more like an agency does where yeah. people can, or have a role for sure, but they may be called upon to do something that's unique and different because that's just where the work is that needs to get done now. That's and a great so, point. um, anyway, there's so many interesting ideas that are in this book that I, I really, really love. I'm going to have to start kind of breaking it down. Like you said, reread it just for rereading its you know, sake and then yeah. figuring out how I can apply it to my own job. You know, it's interesting. Um, this was actually in the introduction. So this is how captivating the book was for me because I found myself highlighting stuff in the introduction for Pete's sake. Like yeah. it's not even into the material yet. And I, there was one, one point of that where I, I quoted, uh, sorry, I wrote down a quote. It's a better way of thinking about competition. It happens at the front line more so than the head office. Mm-hmm. I, so simple, mm-hmm. but the front line's probably not involved in a lot of those strategic decisions. When you think about it, yeah, yeah. Well, they're, I know that's the one ones of the solutions. That, yeah, in in the strategy yeah, part, that's one of his solutions is to bring in people from the front line because you know yeah. there there are some of those people that could say, well, that's not going to work because of this, or here's this really cool idea that, yeah, it's it's a great line for sure. So. Anyways, the fact we have, we've had him twice, two fantastic podcasts um, from yeah. him. We're still fun. He said it again. <laughs> so that's what we learned. <laughs> <laughs> We're still fun. Yeah. Yeah. And I did and, tell my wife that and she laughed. <laughs> <laughs> of course. We've, like we that. didn't talk about space. We didn't talk about, talk about Galaxy Quest. Oh, we didn't Quest talk about Galaxy tonight. Quest. Oh, man. Yeah. That I was didn't a great watch movie. it though. It was pretty Me fun. Me too. <laughs> A line from, from about, you know, this is a dumb job, but I'm going to do it. I'm still going to do fun. it. That was, that was really funny. <laughs> anyway, great pod, V. This is great, man. This was yeah. awesome. Super fun. Let's get on to the next one. <laughs>